This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Lori Williams, a distinguished professor at the North Carolina State University Department of Computer Science. She's author of the Cybok Secure Software Lifecycle Knowledge Area. A lot of organizations um, don't proactively think about how do they build secure products, and often they are reacting to vulnerabilities when they happen. And so the, the secure development lifecycle provides steps that development organizations can take so that when they design and implement a software system that is built to be secure. Well, so let's go through and, and walk through the life cycle itself. Um, where do you usually begin? It's good to begin at the beginning, of course. And <laughs> historically, uh, as I mentioned, um, organizations react, and that's often called penetrate and patch. Um, and then in 1998, Gary McGraw um, did a study, and he was really the first one to come out. He's a he's a consultant, um, and and he came out and said, you know, penetrate and patch is bad. Uh, we need to build some more secure products. Um, a couple years later, Microsoft was really getting pounded on for having a lot of vulnerabilities and, and what was under attack. And um, in 2002, Bill Gates came out with a trustworthy computing initiative, stopped the shipment of Windows and said, we're not going to deliver this until it's secure, hmm. which kind of turned the industry on its head. You know, that 2002 is a long time ago, uh, but Microsoft really set a standard and provided to the whole community a secure development lifecycle model. And that providing it to the community was by design. Like uh, Bill Gates, back when he came back, came out with his trustworthy computing initiative, he specifically said we need to lead the industry. Uh, and so the most comprehensive set of practices that organizations can use and, you know, and historically is the Microsoft Secure Development Lifecycle. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go through that together. What are the various steps that are involved with that? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of steps. Uh, the, the first step is to make sure that the people in the organization have the training. Uh, frequently, be, be, the one thing about training for cybersecurity is that the attackers change what they do all the time. So... You can't just learn security and then know security. You actually need to be update, updated on your training. So hmm. that's the first step. Um, the next one is security requirements. So security requirements say, you know, as we are developing this product, what do we specifically need to take in, you know, into account from a security standpoint? Hmm. And it really can come in one of two flavors. Uh, one is specific security functionality um, could be something like provide authentication and so then you know that's a mechanism or use encryption so these are security types of requirements um, but the other thing that need to you need to be thinking about are for every functional requirement for every functionality that a product is wanting to deliver what are the security implications of that functionality. So there's hmm. a, like derived requirements. Right. Um, if we do this, what could go wrong? Right, yeah. right. 
Yeah, exactly. And so like an example that I usually use is there might be a medical application and it says the doctor can edit the patient record. And so hmm. if you don't think about security, you just provide functionality for the doctor to edit the record. But if you're thinking about security, then you think about, okay, we need to log that action so that if there is a problem, like someone tampers with the record, we'll know who did it. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to encrypt that record. So like you're, you're thinking about the security implications of every area of functionality. How do we know that's actually the doctor who's doing the changes? Right, right. Yeah. And, and then along with that, you know, there are things like that are called abuse cases or misuse cases. And so you're specifically thinking, who are the attackers and what do they want to do? And then build in the defenses. The following is to define metrics and compliance reporting. Uh, and the idea there is that, you know, the organization needs to have thresholds of, you know, we can only have so many vulnerabilities that are in our bug system at any time. And if that, you know, if we exceed that, we need to stop development. Um, compliance, you know, the governments are enforcing a lot more compliance than they used to. Uh, like so, things like GDPR is an example. Right. And so, you know, as governments are, are imposing regulations, you know, how do we factor that in? That That's part of that step. And I suppose that could be uh, dependent on, on what uh, type of industry you're in. For example, like your example for being in the medical industry, they might have different uh, compliance requirements than someone in the financial industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that's the third. Um, the, the fourth step is to perform threat modeling. And so threat modeling is taking the actual architecture of a system and then systematically going through and thinking about what could go wrong. Uh, where like the security requirements is from the perspective of the attacker, like who wants to attack us and what do they want to do, where threat modeling is really saying based upon our architecture. Um, could someone, um, you know, so often go through a model called the Stride model. So Stride came out of Microsoft. So S is for spoofing, T is for tampering, R is for repudiation, I is for information disclosure, D is denial of service, and E is elevation of privilege. And so they'll look at a, an architecture diagram of a system that they're going to develop and think about based upon this diagram and the components in the architecture of the system, are any of those threats relevant? Mm -hmm. And then change the architecture of the system based upon um, trying to mitigate those threats. Um, the fifth step is to establish design requirements. And um, there's a number of design principles. It's another whole talk to think about all of the design principles um, that need to be incorporated into the design of the system. And, and really just based upon trying to design a secure system, um, what are the requirements on the system, right? And uh, some of them are, are universal, some of the design principles. Like I'll, I'll give it just a couple of them. I mean, like I yeah. said, I could talk, and I have done podcasts for a whole hour <laughs> on design principles. Right. But, um, you know, some of them, like least privilege. So that's saying for all the different user types, make sure that they only have the, the privileges in the system for what they need. Or defense in depth. So providing lots of different lines of defense so that an attacker has to get through multiple lines. So those are really universal principles, mm -hmm. but then as you, you indicate, in some cases, they're more specific to the type of the system. I see. Yeah. Um, the next step is 
define and use cryptography standards, so encrypting the most sensitive data um, and making sure that you're using strong encryption and, and not some of the encryption techniques that have been um, cracked. Mm. Um, the next one is uh, manage the security risk of using third-party components. And th this is a really big one now. Uh, systems today, even proprietary systems that organizations, Facebook or Google or anyone uses, they're always bringing in components from the outside, open source components or even other proprietary components into build their system. And then those components that they incorporate into their system can have vulnerabilities. And so just managing the components that your system uses and the security status of them and updating vulnerability, uh, updating components when they have reported vulnerability is like almost an intractable job. And, mm. you know, organizations could have five or 600 different components and on any given day, some of them could be vulnerable and you, it, you just can't update all of the components as soon as vulnerabilities are reported. Hmm. So that's a big problem. Yeah. The eighth in the Microsoft Secure Development Lifecycle is to use approved tools, So, which, which really says an organization um, should be thinking about what tools do they want their developers to use, uh, things like static analysis tools, dynamic analysis tools, what development environment, what debuggers, what compilers, so that the product is most secure. And so an organization should decide on that, declare it, and then developers should make sure they're using those tools. And I suppose the subtext here is don't use unapproved tools. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the ninth step is perform static analysis. So static analysis now uh, more more and more tools are being developed, and these tools look through, uh, um, you know, they automatically, they look through the code statically, which means it's not running, and look for things that are known to be vulnerabilities. Mm. And, you know, lots and lots of vulnerabilities are detected through static analysis tools. Um, I was just reading a paper that Facebook published just recently, and they said the, the way they get vulnerabilities out the most is through static analysis tools. Hmm. And, but, but there's a trade-off there, so the, the tools will point at vulnerabilities, but they'll also can have a lot of false positives. So um, organ, uh, developers can lose their patience a little bit with the false positives. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the tenth step is dynamic analysis. So dynamic analysis is when the code is actually running, you know, which could be uh, a number of different ways. But there are tools, particularly um, called fuzzing tools, that are they're probably the most popular type of tool. And with fuzzing, what a, what a tool will do is look for areas that input can come from the outside, and then just send all kinds of bad formed input to those areas to make sure that the application will stop it mm. uh, and you know it, they may or may not um, so right. dynamic analysis is, is quite popular hmm. um, the 11th is perform penetration testing penetration testing are is typically humans um, some may call fuzzing automated penetration testing but um, most often penetration testing is done by security experts um, organizations often hire external penetration testers to come in and just 
to all kinds of things that attackers are known to do. Mm. So, um, and then the last one is to establish a standard incident response practice. And the idea with that one is that even if you follow all of the 11 other practices, um, you will have attacks. Yeah, I mean, things will get through, people will get through. What do you do when that happens? How does the organization respond quickly so that the, you know, the incident is as, as minimal as possible and recovery as quick as possible? Hmm. Yeah. So those are the, the um, 12 practices of the Microsoft process. There are other processes out in the industry. The Cyboc does list some of the other variations, but I think that that's a good overview. Is it an all or nothing affair? I mean, do people tend to dial in things depending on their needs or um, how, how does that generally work? It's it, like, as much as organizations would like to say it's all or nothing. In reality, it's not all or nothing. Hmm. Um, and so there are some practices that are adopted more quickly. Um, as far as like all or nothing, there are two assessment vehicles that are out um, and these are mentioned in the Cyboc. One is called the Building Security in Maturity Model. Um, and a variation of that, and I guess the, what the variation came first, um, which is the Open SAM framework. And both of these frameworks organizations can use to, to really like look at an enumeration of many practices, like more than 100 different practices, and then assess whether they do them or not. Uh, and the Open SAM came first with with all the practices, and there are lots of tools with that. Um, the Building Security and Maturity Model, or BSIM, has been around for about 10 years now. And what it can help organizations see is what do other people do? Uh, you know, it's a common question that, that I get from organizations all the time. Like, okay, I know we need to care about security. What should I do first? Mm -hmm. And so the BSIM can help if you if you just look, I mean, for each of the, I think it's 112 practices, you can see like an average of whether people adopted them or not. You know, and if I was looking, if I was saying, okay, I'm going to start, that's probably what I would do is go look at the BSIM and look at the practices that are, are most often adopted and then, you know, really try to get those done first. Yeah, the uh, the paper also goes into some of the adaptations of the secure software lifecycle, um, things like agile software development and DevOps, um, uh, mobile and cloud, and, and things like that. What are some of the key take-homes when it comes to those things? Um, you know, e each one is very specific. Um, so like agile, you know, development is done very quickly. And so, you know, there are different processes, like how do you turn security requirements into user stories? Um, how do you, um, you know, just move rapidly uh, and also operate securely? Um, mobile, mobile is interesting. So um, there's an organization called OWASP. Um, OWASP is a nonprofit organization that provides assets or, that organizations can use, like provide testing tools and threat modeling. And so what they, if, like mobile organizations can look at these, these resources provided by OWASP and think about, okay, in a mobile context, what specifically do I need to do um, for testing? What specifically new threats do I have because it's a mobile application? Hmm. And really, um, you know, focus on those types of things. Um, cloud, you know, cloud has lots of different unique types of threats. Again, different threat model. 
and so it's good to look at the resources that are provided. Um, there's another organization called Safe Code, um, and Safe Code is it's a nonprofit, um, and it's a like a, a consortium of companies that produce again resources that others can use, and so they've provided practices that organizations can specifically look at based upon the threat model of cloud. Um, another adaptation is Internet of Things, which is getting more and more common, both from industrial Internet of Things, so whole companies instrumenting with small devices, sensors, um, in order to make their manufacturing floor or their, their site um, more efficient, um, as well as everyday users having Internet of Things type of devices and monitors and sensors and smart light bulbs and smart doorbells. Uh, and so there, there are things that, as a, you know, as an industry, we need to do to make sure that those Internet of Things devices are secure. Um, some, you know, that some of the specific threat models are making sure that you can authenticate the device. Um, also, that if there is a vulnerability detected, that you actually have a way to patch that device. Sometimes the devices can be so small, a sensor so small, that once you have it, you have it, and there is no way to update it. Mm. And that's a problem if it turns out that that's a, an open door for an attacker. Right. So what are your recommendations for organizations looking to adopt the secure development life cycle? Where do they begin? What's a good place to start? You know, I think beginning is making sure that, number one, there's support both at the higher upper management as well as you know the the developers that the whole development team really buys in for the need to develop securely so it's a cultural thing and and that's a very important step is making sure that the culture and the support is there um, and then I would if I was an organization I would look again BSIM as a starting point you know become familiar of what are the practices that other organizations do and really questioning, like, can we do that in or, our organization? And investment in tools, particularly static analysis tools, is important. And, you know, the tools can be expensive. There are some open source tools. So if expenses are an issue, I would be looking out at open source resources. OWASP, that organization I talked about, they do have tools that are available. And so I, I would start to adopt at least open source tools, if not commercial tools. Um, but culture is, is a huge part. Culture and education, I think, are really two important parts. Um, so ma making sure that everyone accepts it. And, you know, there, there's such an attitude, like, who would want to attack us? Like, you mm -hmm. know, and, and just trying to deny that it's a possibility. So culture is big and then getting everyone educated. And, you know, the, part of the culture is the management supporting the fact that things may take longer to develop if they're going to be done securely and and like allowing that development time to increase if it needs to be. Yeah, it seems to me like it could be one of those, you know, pay me now or pay me later situations. Right. And the later is very, very expensive. That's Lori Williams. She's a distinguished professor at North Carolina State University in the Department of Computer Science. To learn more about the Cybok project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Programme and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Weiss Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin. 
Professor George Denisis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cybok Podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iben, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Ivan Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>